If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27 is continuing our series in the tabernacle. We've been looking at God's tent, this portable tent in which God's presence would dwell among his people. And each Sunday, we've been looking at pieces and parts of the instructions that God gave to Moses and learning from them uh, what God was intending to teach them, the Israelites, and what we know from further revelation about the importance and the significance of God's tent. So if you found Exodus 27, I invite you to stand with me as I read verses 1 through 19 this morning. Again, this is God speaking to Moses on the mountain. You are to construct the altar of acacia wood. The altar must be square, seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. It must be four and a half feet high. Make horns for it on its four corners. The horns are to be of one piece. Overlay it with bronze. Make its pots for removing ashes and its shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans. Make all its utensils of bronze. Construct a grate for it of bronze mesh and make four bronze rings on the mesh at its four corners. Set it below under the altar's ledge so that the mesh comes halfway up the altar. Then make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Construct the altar with boards so that it is hollow there to make it just as it was shown to you on the mountain. You are to make the courtyard for the tabernacle. Make hangings for the south side of the courtyard out of finely spun linen, 150 feet long on that side, including 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and silver bands for the posts. And so make hangings 150 feet long for the north side, including 20 posts and their 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and silver bands for the posts. For the width of the courtyard, make hangings 75 feet long for the west side, including their 10 posts and their 10 bases. And for the width of the courtyard on the east side, toward the sunrise, 75 feet, make hangings 22 and a half feet long for one side of the gate, including their three posts and their three bases. And make hangings 22 and a half feet long for the other side, including their three posts and their three bases. The gate of the courtyard is to have a 30-foot screen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. It is to have four posts and there four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to be banded with silver and have silver hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard is to be 150 feet long, 75 feet wide to each end, and seven and a half feet high, all of it made of finely spun linen. The bases of the posts are to be bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its tent pegs, as well as all the tent pegs of the courtyard, are to be made of bronze. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would instruct our hearts from your word. Lord, may we learn more about what it means to to understand this altar and this courtyard. 
that you instructed Moses and the people of Israel to build. Father, may its significance speak to our hearts today, here in 2022. God, may may your word be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and Lord, exposing our hearts and our need for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you would be right to assume that the most important part of the message today will be about the significance of the bronze altar. So just cutting right to it, sacrifice was obviously a big deal, a big part of the Old Testament tabernacle. And anybody with a measure of biblical background would understand that Jesus's sacrifice for sin is of prime importance to us as New Testament Christians. So we will go there quickly. But before we get zeroed in on the altar's significance, allow me to elaborate only briefly on the physical features of the courtyard and the significance of the courtyard. So we're looking first today at this, the physical features of the courtyard. We just read the courtyard size, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. That gave it a total area of a little over 10,000 square feet. If it helps you to visualize the size of the area, think of four tennis courts put together. The fence around it was seven and a half feet high, and it wasn't really a fence. It was made of finely spun linen cloth to be hung from posts at seven and a half foot intervals. Like the tabernacle proper, it would be open to the east. So remember, this part is the courtyard. It's a surrounding fabric screen that would cover the area of 10,000 square feet. And then the tabernacle itself was a smaller portion, a smaller tent on the inside, inside the courtyard's boundaries. Now, the courtyard would need to be large enough to accommodate hundreds of worshipers at a time, as well as the priests who served Yahweh on their behalf, all the animals that were being brought in to be prepared, cooked, and of course, the tabernacle proper itself. And since worshipers would eat some of the portions of their sacrificial meals in Yahweh's presence, there was a constant stream of people during times of sacrifice. They were entering the courtyard, watching their sacrifice be prepared, receiving some of it perhaps from the priests, maybe sitting and eating as households and departing for their own homes. The Net Bible, uh, in its notes, it comments that in the courtyard, the choirs sang. And the believers, they would offer their praises. They had their sins uh, sacrificed for and forgiven. They came to pray. They appeared in the courtyard on holy days, and they would hear from the Lord. It was a sacred place because God met with them there. They left the world, so to speak, outside the, uh, the, the courtyard uh, walls, if you will, and they came to meet with the presence of God. This is, of course, the significance of the courtyard, is that the people of God were, have a place to be in the presence of God. David would exclaim in Psalm 84, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. With a seven and a half foot high barrier all the way around it, the courts became a place that were separated 
and special, a place to meet with God. It was holy. And its 30-foot curtain that marked the entrance from the east matched the curtain of the tabernacle proper, except it didn't have the cherubim woven into it, but it matched in color and style. It opened to the east, which reminds us that when God had banished Adam and Eve out of Eden, he banished them to the east. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, which tells us that God drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. But now God was inviting his people to come near to him. And the way to come and meet with him was to enter in from the east, back toward the cherubim that were on the curtain of the tabernacle proper. They were permitted to enter in his courts, but that, when they did, would confront them upon their entry with a bronze altar. So they were allowed to come in, but when they did, the very first thing they would have seen was the altar. So let's look at the physical features of this bronze altar. The first thing to note about the altar is that it was a very large altar, seven and a half feet wide, Seven and a half feet long is seven and a half feet square, and it was four and a half feet high. It was made out of acacia wood overlaid with bronze, uh, which is a durable and very heat resistant metal, maybe more so than others that were available. The altar was also hollow, which allows, um, along with the rings and the poles, allows it to be portable, like all of the tabernacle was. So in all likelihood, when the tabernacle was set up, they would fill the area in it and around it with stones or with earth to make it stationary. There were also to be horns on the altar. We read about the horns in the first part of chapter 27. And I'm going to explain some of the significance of the horns in a few moments. Then there was also a grate that was supposed to go inside the altar. Now, that mesh grate was essentially there to avoid the great grilling fiasco of Labor Day 2022 when Pastor Jason almost set his house on fire, when the fat from 24 hamburgers created a flame that turned what was meant to be more like a fellowship meal into a whole burnt offering. (laughs) In other words, this altar had a place for the fat to drip away from the flame. Imagine that. For some inexplicable reason, when the fat hits the flame, it gets bigger. I don't understand. We're praying for a good Thanksgiving 2022 because Thanksgiving is important, and I'm going back to charcoal to try and avoid this. All right. Anyway, the slaughtering and the roasting of the animals, though, it does bring us to the heart of the passage. And the heart of the message today is the significance of the bronze altar. As we think about the altar significance, I want us to note, first of all, that the altar, its use was accessible. The use of the altar was accessible. Although we have noted that there was only one entrance into the enclosure of the uh, courtyards and therefore only one way to get to the altar of God, praise be to God, there was a way in. There was a way in toward God's presence. Uh, Moses was not given instructions to put cherubim on the curtain to the courtyard, symbolizing, uh, you know, restriction from God's holiness. There was no cherubim woven into the blue and purple and gold, finely spun linen on the outer entrance screen embroidered. 
They could come in and they could enter the courtyard of God, but the altar reminded them they must do so with sacrifice in hand. We are reminded from this that the way to fellowship with God is through the one and only door of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice for sin. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. A restored relationship with God, hear me, is accessible to everyone, but it comes on God's terms. We must enter through his designated point of entry, and we must not go any farther until we've come to the altar. So then we can say about the altar, secondly, that the altar's placement right there in front of the entrance, it was arresting. It said, stop here. Go no further until you've dealt with the altar. Now these days, if you fly on an airplane, you know what it's like to be funneled as people, to go through a singular point of entry, to have to deal with the taking off your shoes, having your bags inspected, and not being permitted to go any farther until you deal with the TSA. In a similar way, the placement of the bronze altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting was intended to say, you must not go any further until a proper sacrifice has been made. The massive size of the altar confronted the Israelites with the massive gap that was left between God and man as a result of sin. There has to be a sacrifice before we can relate with or dwell with or know God with any intimacy. I read something this week that struck me as I was preparing for the message. One pastor accurately states that many people say they want to know God, but what they usually mean, what they really are thinking is they want God to bless them or they want God to save them from some serious problem. You know, as the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. A lot of people either ignore or forget about God until they desperately need him. And when they do, they want to rush to God like he's a magic genie that can fix their problems. They're not interested in God as much as they are in what God can do for them. They have a long list of questions they'd like him to answer, problems they would like him to solve, and blessings they would like him to to bestow. But the tabernacle and the placement of the altar teaches us something about God. That's not how God operates. Before anything else happens in our relationship with Almighty God, something has to be done about our sin. God is holy. We are not. Until sin is dealt with, there's no way for us to have a relationship with God. So I want to pause right here today and ask you, have you been arrested by your need for your sins to be forgiven? Or put it in a different way, is your sin problem as a parent, as a seven and a half foot wide altar, four and a half feet high, sitting right in front of you, front and center, when you attempt to approach God. The bronze altar was making a statement. And so we could say the altar's message, thirdly, was apparent. 
Drawing near to God requires the death of a substitute. Unlike the golden altar of incense that we'll look at in chapter 30 inside the tabernacle, this bronze altar was a place of bloodshed and death. And the author of Hebrews makes it plain when he says in chapter 9, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the altar was saying. Warren Wearsby writes in his commentary, If, let's say, a sinner could manage to enter the tabernacle courtyard, wash himself in the bronze basin, that wouldn't save him. Nor would he be forgiven if he entered the holy place and ate the bread of the presence or had the incense altar at his disposal. No, the way into the presence of God for God's people began exclusively at the bronze altar where an innocent victim died for guilty sinners. In short, the bronze altar points us unmistakably to Calvary, where the Son of God died for the sins of the world. Like John the Baptist said of Jesus, you know, in John chapter 1, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God made it plain in the book of Leviticus that the blood of the animal is its life, and it is the atonement for the life of the sinner. So we read in Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And to further, even further illustrate this concept, the worshiper would put his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal to identify himself with it. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He will bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. So you're getting the picture. You've got a, a sacrificial animal. You're coming to the tent. You're coming to the tabernacle. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So what I want you to hear from that, and remember this altar's message, is that the animal was accepted on behalf of the person. That was the unmistakable message. Substitutionary atonement. A substitute for sinners. The animal took the place of the person and symbolically bore that person's sins. Now, I make sure to say the word symbolically because the author of Hebrews explains in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There was always intended to be a pointer toward a perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And this was made evident even in the time of Moses. How? Because although the people were permitted to enter into the courtyard to worship God, to dwell in his presence, to dwell with other uh, believers in God, their fellowship with God was still restricted. The average Israelite could only come into the courtyard and was received by humbly bringing the blood of a sacrifice. But that Israelite could never go into the holy place. That was only for the priests. And of course, even the priests could not enter into the most holy place. Remember last week when we were talking about this? Only the high priest could do that. And at that, he could only do it one time a year on the Day of Atonement. So the message of the altar was that sin was the problem that separates us from God. Substitutionary death must take place. And blood, that blood, must be taken into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, and sprinkled on the mercy seat by the work of a mediating high priest. That is how this whole tabernacle system works together to create a unified message. And my dear friends, let me share with you, Jesus did it all. Jesus accomplished everything that the tabernacle was pointing us to. He dealt with our problem of sin, Even the fact that he was crucified outside the city gates of Jerusalem was a fulfillment of the way that an offering for sin was made on the bronze altar. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, where he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, the bodies of those sacrifices that they take the blood into the holy of holies, the bodies are burned where? Outside the camp. And then the writer of Hebrews makes the connection for us to understand why was Jesus crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem? Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. His body, disposed of, so to speak, burned up, so to speak, on the cross of Calvary, outside the gate, his blood was taken into the holiest of places where the veil was torn for us. And he pleads his own blood as a great high priest on our behalf eternally now. Not only did Jesus deal with our sin, he was the substitute who atoned for us. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches. The Bible says that for our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. Speaking of Jesus, he knew no sin, but that in him, we might become the righteousness of God for our sake. Jesus took our place, even though he was sinless, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus dealt with sin. Jesus took our place. We spoke last week that Jesus tore the veil 
and he applies the blood of his own perfect sacrifice as a living high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We won't even go there. I'm taking Brother Bill's whole Sunday, you know, ABF. Like Hebrews is the interpretation here. We need to see Jesus, brothers and sisters. He dealt with our sin. He took our place. He tore the veil and his blood is applied on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, I know sometimes we as pastors will mistakenly refer to the front of this place in which we gather as an altar. But let me make it abundantly clear. The only altar we need is Jesus Christ. The Puritan John Owen once said, the altar which we now have is Christ alone and his sacrifice. For he was both priest and altar and sacrifice all in himself. That's profound. So an invitation to the altar is truly an invitation to Jesus, an invitation to come to Jesus Christ today. If you've never had that problem of your own sin that separates you from God dealt with, you need to come to the altar who is Jesus Christ, not here, there. For those of you who have already come to the cross of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for reconciliation with God, you know from Scripture that since Jesus has paid the price of our sin, past, present, and future, God no longer commands for us to bring a sacrifice, but he wants us as believers to become one. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is the sacrifice we make as Christians, not on an altar of bronze, but in the altar of our minds and our hearts. And so do you remember when I said we'd speak of the significance of the horns of the altar? There is some debate about what the horns were for. The purpose of the horns in Exodus 27 on the altar is left unexplained. But the priests were later told to put some of the blood on them. We read that in Leviticus chapter 1. And the psalmist writes that the sacrificial victims, those animals, were sometimes bound to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118 verse 27 says, The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of of the altar. So perhaps there was some uh, practical or functional use to the horns. And drawing on that visual picture, one pastor has said that proper spiritual sacrifice means we are, as Christians, to subdue the lusts of the flesh by tying them captive, as it were, unto the obedience to God. Being bound to the altar is a good thing. So keep yourself tied up, so to speak, with obedience to God's holy word. Stay on the altar. I'll never forget what my childhood pastor, Bobby Welch, once said about the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. That's the problem with living sacrifices. So I invite you, Christian, bind yourself to the horns of God's word. 
Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Have hands that are bound to do God's work and not to hurt or harm other image bearers. Have feet that are bound to go where God would have you to go and not down the path to adultery or to evil doing. Have tongues that are bound to the altar to speak God's praise instead of cursing your neighbor. Have minds that are bound to the altar to think God's thoughts after him and not dwell on earthly trivialities. Have knees that are bound to bend to the will of King Jesus and not to the will of any other man. So there are simply two responses to God's word today as we close. Either, if you are not a believer, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to respond to the word of God today by coming to the altar of Jesus Christ and receive complete forgiveness, atonement for your sin. Or, as a member of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, be reminded of the need to bind yourself to the horns of the altar. As you sacrifice your own body in spiritual worship and service to Almighty God, never to earn God's mercy, but as Paul said so clearly in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy.